Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Welcome to How Stuff Works Now. I'm your host, Lauren Vogelbaum, a researcher and writer here at How Stuff Works. Every week, I'm bringing you three stories from our team about the weird and wondrous advances we've seen in science, technology, and culture. This week, you can get pregnant when you're already pregnant. And, unrelated, there was a time not all that long ago when farmers went absolutely mad for bird poop. But first, staff editor Christopher Hasiotis and our freelance writer Patrick J. Kiger explore a question we were curious about. When and why did America start calling its citizens consumers? It's hard to say exactly when it started. But in the United States, there seems to be an increasing tendency to use the term consumer interchangeably with citizen, even when the discussion isn't taking place strictly in an economic framework. And some political experts say that the choice of words may reveal a subtle but worrisome shift in how we see ourselves and our role in American society, away from the notion of working together with others toward the common good and toward a nation of individuals primarily motivated by self-interest. Dr. Jathan Sadowski, an economist and lecturer, wrote the 2015 article, Stop Treating Citizens as Consumers. He says that using consumer interchangeably with citizen has become part of our default discourse, the normal way we view society and people. Just look at the recent presidential election, he says. This consumer versus citizen language is often used when analysts and pundits talk about elections. Voters are just consumers with preferences, and the election is a marketplace of products to choose from. In the store, we vote with our dollar and we're told that elections are functionally the same thing. You just use a ballot instead of a buck to cast your vote. This understanding of democratic processes as a marketplace is just one more place where the citizen is overtaken by the consumer. Taking a broader view, both words have been around for centuries. The word citizen dates back to the 1300s, though it originally meant the inhabitant of a city and didn't take on its present meaning, a person who has rights and responsibilities in a society, until around the year 1610. The word consumer, on the other hand, arose in the 1400s, though back then it meant someone who squandered or wasted things. 
And it took on a less pejorative economic meaning, a person who uses goods and services and does the opposite as someone who's a producer around 1745. Michael Munger, the director of the philosophy, politics, and economics program at Duke University's political science department, notes that the word consumer seldom appeared in print until about the year 1900. But starting around then, it steadily rose until it passed up citizen in frequency in the late 1950s. And these days, the word consumer shows up about three times as often as citizen. Munger theorizes that the shift in usage had to do with the rise in the 20th century of progressive politics. The progressives primarily saw citizens as being helpless, trapped by large forces, he says, especially corporations. The New Deal social programs devised by Franklin Roosevelt in the 1930s and Lyndon Johnson's Great Society effort of the 1960s, Munger argues, reinforced the idea that participation in politics was mostly a way of getting your share of consumption. Politicians increasing use in the 1960s of sophisticated marketing techniques borrowed from sellers of products, breakfast seal, cars, antiperspirants, may also have played a role. Today, campaigns gather and analyze mountains of data to conduct micro-targeting efforts which look at individual voters' attitudes and behaviors and what might best be the way to reach them. And government itself is being judged as if it were a consumer business. The American Customer Satisfaction Index, for instance, even rates the federal government on how people feel about their interactions with it. If you're wondering, by the way, it got a 68% positive rating in 2016, up from 63.9% the previous year. So, consumer, citizen, this isn't just semantics. The words we use can have an impact on how we live. A 2012 study in the journal Psychological Science found that the choice of words may exert a subtle influence upon how we see ourselves. In one part of the study, people who answered a consumer response survey tended to express more materialistic, self-centered values than those who answered a citizen survey. In another part of the study, researchers presented subjects with hypothetical situations in which people had to share water from a well and labeled them as either consumers or citizens. Subjects who got the consumer identity tended to distrust others more about water sharing, felt less in partnership with other subjects, and felt less personally responsible compared to those who were labeled citizens. To the extent that the role of citizen and consumer is merging today, it seems to underscore a shift away from viewing Americans as having responsibility in our political system and toward a more individualistic idea of what it means to be American, says Josh Pasek, an assistant professor of communication studies at the University of Michigan. He says, Your job as an American citizen requires that you fulfill key democratic norms, such as being informed, deliberating about political issues, and participating in civic and political life. As an American consumer, though, your actions are relevant only to the extent that they respond to economic incentives. The responsibility to be engaged and participatory is not your own, but instead depends on a system oriented to bring you in. Frank Trentman, a professor of history at the University of London and author of the book Empire of Things, How We Became a World of Consumers from the 15th Century to the 21st, thinks the blurred distinction between consumer and citizen may make it tougher for people to come together to solve problems. He says, not all consumers see the world in the same way, and hence concerted action is difficult. That's why some would like to see us go back to seeing ourselves differently. As political commentator Mark Shields wrote in 2012, maybe it's time that Americans started insisting that leaders treat them not like consumers, but as citizens who recognize that we have, in addition to rights and privileges, real obligations and responsibilities. <laughs> 
Next up, senior editor Catherine Whitbourne and our freelance writer Alia Hoyt bring us a story that goes against what most of us learned in biology class. It's possible, though rare, to get pregnant a second time while you're already pregnant. Finding out you're carrying two or more babies at once can be a pretty huge shock under normal circumstances. Now imagine you're one of the very few pregnancies involving multiple fetuses of different ages of gestation at the same time. Someone's got splinting to do. That's right. It's possible, although, and we really must stress this, extremely rare to conceive a child while already pregnant. The phenomenon is known in medical circles as superfetation and involves two eggs, two different sperm, and two different conception time frames. This is different from something called superfecundation, which is when a woman releases two eggs in the same time period, each of which is fertilized by the sperm of a different man. Only about 10 human cases of superfetation have been investigated, so it's hard to put a firm time frame on just what constitutes separate ages of gestation. But suspected superfetation does require two separate ovulation incidences, one of them after an initial pregnancy has already occurred. The human body is designed to prevent superfetation from even being an issue. Once pregnant, a woman's reproductive system isn't supposed to continue sending out eggs. In fact, she's not supposed to ovulate more than once per cycle. Multiple ovulations can happen in the same cycle, but that's when two eggs are released within the same 24-hour period, potentially resulting in the conception of fraternal twins. Dr. Robert Atlas is the chair of the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Mercy Medical Center in Baltimore, Maryland. He says that the presence of cervical mucus, which begins to block the cervix almost immediately after conception, is typically a major hindrance for follow-up sperm. He says you only have 24, maybe 36 hours, when the cervical mucus is thin, where the sperm can penetrate and get into the uterus. Although it's rare in humans, superfetation is common in certain animals like cats, panthers, and badgers. Some animals even have multiple uteruses to accommodate the phenomenon. That's not the only way in which human pregnancies are different from other animals. We don't usually carry multiples, and when we do, they're considered high risk. During his 25 years in practice, Dr. Atlas has never encountered superfetation in action, nor is he likely to. But if he did, he'd probably draw the conclusion after considering more likely possibilities. During a woman's ultrasound, you can measure the crown rump length of her fetus. That's the length from the top of its head, the crown, to the bottom of its buttocks, the rump, and it's used to determine a baby's gestational age. If there's a length difference between two babies, a doctor would be more likely to think the smaller one might have a potential abnormality rather than this being a case of superfetation. Some experts are skeptical as to whether human superfetation is even a thing in the first place. Dr. Jim Batoni, maternal fetal medicine expert, says that most of the alleged cases of human superfetation are really cases of twin fetuses of the same age with unequal development. Fortunately, in cases of suspected superfetation, both babies have thrived. Once doctors recognize that one of the babies might be born prematurely and take the right precautions, things seem to turn out fine. Finally this week, managing editor Allison Loudermilk and our freelancer Kate Kirshner delve into a bit of seemingly ridiculous history. Bird poop was once so valuable that the United States passed a law claiming possession of all bird poop that fell on unclaimed land. Let's travel to the Pacific Remote Islands Marine National Monument. This immense monument spans 370,000 square nautical miles. That converts to 490,000 square miles. 
These protected islands and waters stretch from Wake Atoll in the northwest to Jarvis Island in the southeast. Within this cluster of small islands, you might find the sooty tern nesting in Jarvis Island, the wandering tattler browsing around Palmyra Atoll, and brown boobies roosting on Kingman Reef. All of those birds mean you're going to encounter something else. Bird droppings. Brace yourself for a little history lesson that just might make you take a real interest in what islands have birds, and thus bird droppings. The lesson will be particularly useful if you're interested in claiming an imperialist stake in deserted islands and declaring them under vague, if legal, American ownership. All because of a pile of poop. Let's start not too far in the past. In 2014, Secretary of State John Kerry and the Obama administration decided to expand the Pacific Remote Islands Marine National Monument from 86,888 square miles to those 490,000 square miles we mentioned earlier. With that expansion, commercial fishing, drilling, and other disruptive activities were banned in what became the world's largest marine sanctuary. But where did the United States get the authority to protect those islands and their surrounding waters? Bird poop. More specifically, the authority came from the Guano Islands Act of 1856, which basically says that if a U.S. citizen finds a pile of guano on any rock, island, or key, and that location isn't already under possession of a government, you can consider it as "quote unquote" appertaining to the United States. We'll get to the appertaining bit later. The Guano Law didn't get on the books as a joke. It was a real crisis that caused lawmakers to take deposits of bird dew seriously. In the early 19th century, seabird droppings were all the craze in farming fertilizer, thanks to those droppings being super rich in phosphorus and nitrogen. U.S. farmers really wanted to get their hands on the stuff, and the Peruvians, which had controlled the market, were running out of it. So, U.S. lawmakers created this nebulous act that says, should you find guano on any unclaimed land, the United States can decide it's theirs for the taking. But the law doesn't say what appertaining really means. It doesn't mean the guano-rich unclaimed land becomes part of the U.S. Exactly, it just means that the U.S. can use these islands or keys or rocks for collecting guano, and then they can get the heck out. So, what some argue is one of the earliest legal structures of American imperialism appears to be based on excrement. The Guano Law is still on the books today. Five of the islands included in the Pacific Remote Islands Marine National Monument were the United States to protect only because the country was desperate for the bird poop on them, and created a rather shady way to get at it. In total, about 70 islands were claimed based on the law, and while most of the islands remain formally unincorporated, Palmyra is technically an unorganized, incorporated territory. Meaning, well, not much. Both the Nature Conservancy and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service are now stewards of the Palmyra Atoll. And the guano craze? It didn't last forever. By the 20th century, synthetic fertilizers had become the solution and perhaps problem of the future. That's our show for this week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Further thanks to our audio producer Dylan Fagan and our editorial liaison Allison Loudermilk. Subscribe to Now Now for more of the latest science news and send us links to anything you'd like to hear us cover. Plus, do you have any science or culture questions that you can't find an answer to? Let us know. Answering the unanswerable is sort of our business. As always, you can send us an email at nowpodcast@howstuffworks.com. And for lots more stories like these, head on over to our home planet, now.howstuffworks.com. Picasso knows your vacation home is your best home. 
It's the place that brings family and friends together. It's where you're the best version of yourself. Picasso makes it easy to co-own a luxury vacation home in amazing locations. Listings start at 200K for one-eighth ownership. Picasso does all the work for you. Luxury furnishings, maintenance, billing, scheduling, and more. And you can resell on Picasso's marketplace anytime, historically for a 10% gain. Visit Picasso to see thousands of listings. That's P-A-C-A-S-O dot com. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.